Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North and welcome to our forum this time on the concept of a breakaway civilization. Our guest today is Richard Michael Dolan, the scholar who coined the term and provided a conceivable substantiation for this remarkable notion. He is an Oxford-educated historian and political analyst who's provided the foremost study on the history of unknown spacecrafts and other aerial objects, not only presenting sober facts, but also skilled interpretation and analysis of the material. As a genuine researcher, he obtains primary sources from government, military and intelligence documents, the US and Canadian National Archives, travels for interviews with leading figures in a national security community which includes five stars generals, retired admirals, highest level CIA officers, world famous scientists, briefers of presidents and even some working within cover-up operations. As a regular conference speaker with countless appearances in media, radio, TV, film and broadcast all over the world, he's also delivered six presentations at the National Press Club in DC, as cited in the Washington Post. Go to our website for an extensive bio with full bibliography and links to all his different sites which, like our series on the timeline of a breakaway civilization, concerns science, politics, classification, possible non-terrestrial involvement, and what all this means for our civilization. This is what Mr. Dolan now drops in to make a case for. Welcome uh, to the forum, Richard. Thank you, Al. I'm glad to be here. Yes, and I have to congratulate you because you're actually our first guest after we purchased our new microphone. <laughs> we, glad I made the cut. Yeah, we had to. You should have heard the sound on the last tape. Oh, okay. I sounded like I was a robot trapped in a box drowning. So Not a good... I mean, the drowning robots, you know, we all love robots, but when they're drowning, it's just sad. It is. And so now we can honor this interview with at least... If they if they are annoyed from this interview, it should be from what we are saying and not the sound of how we're saying it. Exactly. Yeah. That's the best way. Okay. Well, I have to say before we begin that you are like a fresh breeze in the field of ufology. In many ways, it's fair to compare you with Jacques Vallée. I've never been a, a UFO nut, to put it a little biased, mm. and uh, our show is not exactly on UFOs in themselves, but uh -huh. as you know, we can't avoid UFOs in this field anyway. But mm. the first thing I want to say about you is that you have done a very decent historic record of 50 years of UFO phenomenon mm. from 41 to 91. Yes. And you actually did what, for some weird reason, no one has done before. You're just collecting and documenting what's out there. I tried to collect and um, and then describe as concisely and as accurately as I could um, each of what I felt were the most important events uh, related to the UFO phenomenon from that period. And um, 
in addition to that, you, you probably would be um, ready to, I'm sure you were about to talk about this as well, but my, my work is, it's about collecting and documenting for sure, but it's also really about two other, at least two other streams of thought, which um, one is simply the political implications of the UFO phenomenon. So mm. in addition to looking at the reports themselves, the good ones, as I see it, uh, I'm trying always to understand what is the reaction to this phenomenon by uh, what I've come to call the national security state, that is the uh, military and intelligence communities who have been interacting with us. What do they think about it? Whatever their thoughts been? Uh, is there a cover up? Are they confused by it? And so forth. So those questions are important to me. And then the, uh, the third uh, strand of thinking that goes into those two volumes of history is uh, where have the civilians been? Has there been, you know, attempts to end secrecy? Um, what is the development of civilian research on this phenomenon, things of this particular sort. So I've always seen those three, uh, it's like three legs of a chair. And um, for sure, though, I, I guess probably the main one are, is the collection of those cases. And in every case, uh, I treat each one of those cases as a, as a precious little gem. Mm. So I would uncover the gem and, and uh, clean it up and find out, you know, what's the best way that I can describe this and put this into a book so that other people can appreciate just what is important about it. And there's quite a few of those. Yeah, sure. Uh, the two books that you so far have on this topic, uh, what are they called? Well, my two volumes of history, I've written four, I've published four books on the UFO subject. Hmm. Um, the, the two volumes of history that uh, you were referring to are, are my first two books, and uh, maybe they're the ones that, that got me known the most anyway. They're called UFOs and the National Security State. They're volumes one and two. I've been saying for quite some time there will be a third volume. Yeah, I was going to press you for that. <laughs> no, no, it'll, it'll happen. Yeah. I, I'm actually working on um, another book uh, in front of it. This is horrible for the readers of the third volume because I, I wrote the first two books. And then instead of the third volume, I published a book called AD After Disclosure. And then I just published another book a, a little over a year ago. Uh, called UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. Mm. Both of those I, I wrote for very important reasons, but readers of the historical series, I think they keep wondering, hey, what's what's going on with your third volume? And uh, I actually have another book that I'm working on right now, which is not even a UFO book. Could we get back to that book a little later? Because I, oh, sure. uh, I have that on the agenda. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I'm excited about it. It's disturbing and interesting, but we'll Indeed. do one thing at a time here. Yeah, and I just want to say that the books you have uh, covered the historical records for so far is from 1941 to 1991. Yeah. So in a way, those two other books you mentioned that you have published already are concerning the future. So there's actually a gap between 91 and today. <laughs> well, a little bit. Um, in, in my last book, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, there's, uh, there's an entire chapter dedicated to important UFO cases of the last 20 years. So that oh. would cover it. And there's also a, a very contemporary political analysis mm. of uh, the cover-up of the science uh, related to the UFO phenomenon. So I, I try to keep that one a little more up, up to date. Oh, oh, like the like substantiating uh, human scientific development. Correct. 
connected to this? Yes, absolutely. Huh. That's uh, that's like uh, one of our pet guests here, Joseph oh, okay. Farrell. He's mm-hmm. he's been into this for a while, trying to substantiate that you don't need to explain all the UFO technology with back engineering of crashed saucers. You're probably aware of this paradigm. Absolutely. I, mm. In fact, I referred to Joseph in my uh, my last book quite a bit, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. Uh, I have a section that deals with the breakaway civilization. And, of course, Joseph's thoughts are um, – we, we've chatted about this quite a bit. In terms of science, I, I just would point out that um, – mm. The science, um, the, the UFO phenomenon has been uh, criticized by scientists for many, many years, for generations, mm. uh, primarily because they would say things like, well, it's impossible for a craft to do a zigzag maneuver at high speed because that would kill the pilot, or it's impossible to have interstellar flight, or it's impossible for telepathic communications to exist as as are alleged by human beings and and some of their other beings that they claim to be in touch with and what what you find when you look at contemporary science is that in fact um our own science is at the point where we are easily now explaining many of these long-standing ufo mysteries that never made sense but in fact they do make sense and this is a phenomenon in other words that really intersects with the most leading edge scientific work of our of our time mm. Also, even if this less known groundbreaking science that is out there and for some reason is not, uh, we're not taking the consequences of what actually, how far we actually have developed. So yes, you're right. There is a precedence in science right now for many of these things. But even if there weren't, mm-hmm. any statement starting with it's impossible could just be transcribed to according to our current paradigm absolutely absolutely <laughs> that's not very scientific is it no. that's more like a historian talking sure yeah <laughs> I, I think you, you couldn't have said it better yeah. um you know science is uh, is extremely important but science is run by scientists uh, who are human and um sometimes i they... thought it was run by corporatism and and, and states right now well, but, yes uh, actually you're quite right there you are quite right yeah so uh, but there is even a fourth volume i guess i'm sorry to say uh, that's missing in your uh, work here because mm-hmm. there is grounds for a book that could cover cases prior to 41 i agree uh, I'm thinking as far back as you can go. Would that ever be a task of yours, do you think? I've thought about it many times. Uh, yes? When, when I, I published my my last book, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, I in, intended that book to be an ideal first read for a sophisticated reader on the UFO phenomenon. So it included really everything that I felt was important, including the whole idea of ancient astronauts, ancient UFOs, uh, to what extent we can understand that including all of the history up to today, uh, the philosophy of UFO investigations, the uh, social implications of the UFO phenomenon, the scientific implications, Mm. uh, the political, the deep politics, the types of encounters that people claim to have and looking at the future, all of that I included in this last book. So there is a chapter on the ancient phenomenon. But of course, um, that's a subject that should warrant an entire book. Mm. I don't know whether I'll do it or not. It's... um, Each of these subjects um, that I've delved into in the UFO phenomenon have taken, like my first book took me five years. My second book took me longer than five years. Um, they, um, They require just so much research. 
for me to do the ancient UFO phenomenon, <clears throat> I'm, I, I have a good understanding of it. I think um, I, I don't feel like I'm a novice, but it, it's a lot of work. And um, yeah. and the problem with the ancient UFO phenomenon, frankly, is really how much can we we truly say? Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of suggestive rock carvings. Uh, there are interesting. Um, you know, literary remains from ancient texts that, um, but, well, what can you really... Yeah, but now you're going very far back. Yeah, well, so if you want to go back even a century or two, let's go back to the era that people like Charles Fort would look into when he was um, looking at 19th century UFO encounters. Um, you can you can look at a lot of these, but really you're looking at newspaper accounts that never received investigation. Mm. And so what you have are stories, and I certainly agree that some of them are very intriguing, very interesting. But um, I don't, I don't know what conclusions we can really come to this um, by Good point. studying it. So I've hesitated. So your work is very much about uh, follow the paper trail, the documentation. Well, certainly that's what I try to do. Um, this is a subject that is it, it's a tremendous mystery. The phenomenon itself is intrinsically very difficult. Uh, I've come to the conclusion that we are dealing with an intelligence that is that is operating on a very different level than our own civilization. That's my opinion at the moment. And uh, one that is filled with a great deal of what we would call strangeness. Mm. And, and so by it very, itself, it's very difficult. But then on top of that, we're in a a world in the 21st century, and particularly in my country, in the United States, that is moving toward a kind of uh, a, a global totalitarian uh, situation where information is not easy to get out of our government. Mm. Uh, even, even with the UFO, uh, there have been a few thousand pages of documents that have been released from the United States government through Freedom of Information. But primarily, most of those documents that we have were released um, about 40 Years ago, during the 19th, late 70s, um, four years under Jimmy Carter gave us the majority of the released UFO documents that we have to this day. Mm. Incredible to say that. No, yeah, no, I'm with you there. Uh, I mean, uh, one of the perspectives of our forum is that, as you have heard before, many have this position, is that in a way democracy was, there was a coup. Uh, when JFK was killed and uh, yeah. I think the Carter administration was like a little it's like two steps ahead and one back so mm -hmm. uh, the Carter administration was like a, a little semi-democratic period there uh, until the coup continued again afterwards uh, yeah interesting way to look at it I, I have a couple of different thoughts on Carter I certainly agree that his presidency was during, I guess, what I – I grew up, I was a teenager in the Carter years. I remember this very well and studied Jimmy Carter. Mm. It was really the most, uh, I guess, politically liberal moment in, in um, 20th century American politics, at least later 20th century American politics. Mm. Uh, I certainly agree with you regarding uh, JFK, and I believe his assassination can really be described as a coup d'etat mm. for sure. Yeah, uh, we're getting back to all this later, if not in this mm -hmm. forum today, uh, maybe a future. Uh, oh, yeah, I also have to tip you off. Our last guest, the poor fellow who had to suffer the bad <laughs> microphone quality, uh. he actually uh, specializes in the 19th century. His name is Walter Bosley. 
Mm. And uh, he has made a discovery connecting some dots that hasn't been related before, and that is the airship mystery uh, of the 1890s. Yes, exactly. And he's connected this to a group of German banksters, and some of them also occultists and nationalists. Uh, It was this milieu that uh, the Nazi party raised from. And uh, he's also connected it to very early bell technology uh, regarding the Nazi bell. So if that's... 897 is a bit early. Obviously, there were no Nazis in 897. But clearly, uh, well, this is... I'll have to listen to it. (laughs) Yeah, I suggest you listen to the show. We we go into it. It's a divergent from anything called UFO history. Uh, and it's right, pretty right. new. Uh, you've probably heard the name Charles Delachaux or, or something like that. Yeah. It's his notebooks. But you can check right. that out later. It should be of interest to you who's the sure. primary UFO historian out there right now. Now, the other yeah, thing, I'm, I'm not done uh, complimenting you here. I need to put this <laughs> second point out there too before we begin. And that is that you are a brilliant analyzer, not just an historian, but you have uh, managed to kind of separate this phenomenon where you introduce a new concept that has grown very popular, probably because it resonates and explains so much. This is the topic for today's show, and that's what everyone now has heard as the term breakaway civilization. Yes. And uh, before you start explaining that, I want to ask you, how did you, as a serious scholar, Mm -hmm. get into ufology? Because normally academicians will be reluctant to touch it, partly due to the stigma uh, in media and partly due to it being a career suicide. So could we start with you explaining how you at all came into this uh, area? Yes, gladly. Um, It was a little over 20 years ago. I was, uh, my whole, my whole life, uh, through my, my late teens and twenties, um, everything was geared toward, uh, becoming a professor and teaching at an American university, teaching history. Uh, that was really always my, um, my love. And, um, when I was a young man, I, um, I'd had some very excellent experiences in the academic world. I did, uh, receive a scholarship to study at Oxford University when I was 21 years old. It was a great experience. I studied under a Rhodes Scholar who encouraged me to apply for the Rhodes, and and I did, and made the final cut. I didn't I didn't get the Rhodes, but I was in the running. But did you go to Oxford? I did. Yes, I, I studied at Exeter College at Oxford University. That's the same one that uh, Joseph Farrell studied in, I think. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's but it right. wasn't at the same time. No, no, no. I think Joseph's uh, a little bit older than me, mm. and um, I don't even know what. I think I've, I read read which college he went to at Oxford. I was at Exeter. We put up full biography of all yeah. of us. We're going to out you too. So I, I was in a, a certificate program. It wasn't a it wasn't a degree. I think he may have gotten a degree there, but yeah. I did go and I had a great experience. Cool. Uh, made the final cut for a Rhodes scholarship, which um, I've, that was a weird, funny inter- inter- experience myself. And then as a result of not getting the roads, I went to the University of Rochester uh, for graduate work in history. And I, was, I did very well there. I studied uh, European, uh, mostly German history, a lot of Soviet studies. Hmm. And uh, my German wasn't, wasn't the best. I, I did okay with it. It was, it was a try. I was in Berlin when the wall came down in 1989. Wow. Uh, I had uh, hitchhiked across uh, Germany in 87. 86, I was in East Germany on our German language program. 
uh, crazy times. And then, yeah. uh, and then I switched over to U.S. diplomacy in the early 90s. I took one year off. I went through my own crisis at around the age 30, hmm. got, had gotten married, had no money. And then I went back to the University of Rochester for U.S. diplomacy and excelled in, in the study there and was working on that Ph.D., uh, in my very early 30s, and that was basically American Cold War studies, 1949, 1950, everything about Harry Truman. And then the the job market for historians had bottomed out. It was just a bad, bad time in the early 90s. It's still bad, actually. Mm. And I was in a bookstore uh, with my wife at the time, and I saw a UFO conspiracy book. It was authored by um, Timothy Good. It's called Above Top Secret. The subtitle was what caught my attention, the worldwide UFO cover-up. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Let's take a look at this book. I think uh, my attitude at that time was, <clears throat> um, I, I had a similar attitude that a lot of other people had about UFOs, which was I didn't really think about it. Hmm. It wasn't really a big part of my life. Um, but I'd wondered from time to time, gee, is there anything to these claims of visitation or claims of cover-up and so forth? Mm. And I think because I was studying, a, you know, really a key period in, in the history of UFOs, I was studying 1940s, 1950s uh, in my own academic work. I, I It was a bit jarring to me to see all of these references to the 1940s and 50s in this book. So I bought the book and read it and um and then I, I thought i would simply take out two or three months of my life and decide for myself to my own satisfaction what i thought about this phenomenon did i uh, i didn't like going through my life with this question mark mm -hmm. hanging over me is this real is this nonsense and what is it what do i think about this and uh, those two or three months turned into the next uh <laughs> two decades. And I've been. So what I what I discovered right away was, uh, I, I first thing I wanted to do is to find out what is the argument that these people who believe in the phenomenon have. Like how strong is their argument? What is the basis of their claim? Do they have government documents? What are the good resources? So I did a bibliographic search, and I also I looked for declassified. The documents that did exist, I discovered there's quite a few. I read them. Did you encounter books of Jacques Vallée at this point? Yes, I did. Actually, um, it's interesting that you mentioned Jacques Vallée. I've, uh, I admire him very much. Um, Vallée uh, started um, writing about the UFO phenomenon in the mid-1960s. He was working with Alan, J. Allen Hynek, of course. Yeah. Uh, I What I did in those early years is I was like a human vacuum cleaner. Right? It's, it's impossible for me to describe I had no UFO library, and this is in the 1990s, the mid-90s, so it's really pre-internet research primarily. There was internet, and I did use the internet to find books through uh, library loan. Mm. Uh, that's primary. But anyway, I, I hunted down literally hundreds of books of the early period, including all of Valet's early books, including all of... Um, Donald E. Kehoe's books and Edward Ruppelt's books and J. Allen Hynek's books and Coral and James Lorenzen's books and many, many others. And then what I did with them is I pillaged them for factual data. So um, mm. when I would find a, a fact with a date, I would make a check mark in the margin of the book. And when I finished each book, I would collect all the check marks and put them in a chronological database that I was collecting on my computer. So, and with a citation, so I knew where I got the information from. So I was, I was creating these chronologies. Mm. 
So you were already starting uh, without uh, realizing it. Exactly, work. exactly. <laughs> and and um, what you do when you start creating chronologies like that, um, you uh, you really are able to see things that you'd otherwise miss, particularly when you begin to combine chronologies from different sources, different books, and you start finding correlations. And... Um, the next thing I knew, my the chronology that I created was a nearly a 500-page book itself, and I thought, well, I'm just going to write, I'm just going to write my book, and that's actually how my first book, UFOs for the National Security State, the first volume, that's how that came out. Um, I did the, uh, I did very meticulous research creating a chronology, and then I would, I took the data and and tried to um, organize it. Just. Uh, in, in in the best way that I could, I suppose, and to do the best type of analysis of that data that I could do. Mm. And that's that's how, that's how it happened. That's mm. exactly, mm. and and I've done that with uh, I did that with my second volume of history, which covers 1973 to 91, and that's that is the case with the third volume, which um, I have an I have an enormous the chronology that I've created now is is uh, over a, would be a three thousand page book hmm. if I were to publish it. Right. It's rather long. But how how did you uh, come to the realization that we are we're dealing with a breakaway civilization here? Right. And, and where did you first publish this notion? I will. Absolutely. I'm glad you asked. So uh, I was writing my second volume of UFOs in the National Security State, and if, in fact, in um, the ninth chapter of that book, I, I published that book in 2009. So that's the first time that the idea that the phrase breakaway civilization appeared in print anywhere. That was in 2009, the summer of 09 when I published that book. Um, it the the idea came to me when I was writing that book. I'm thinking in um, late in the day, maybe 07, 08. I have to I have to go through my notes, probably too early 2008, I would bet you. And um, it's in the ninth and final major chapter of the book i don't even have it in front of me but that chapter opens with an analysis of um of the cover-up as i understood it at that time so i'd gone through um most of the historical narrative of the, of the phenomenon and then i opened the ninth chapter with a uh a, i think a three or four thousand word uh sub section in there that described the analysis of the cover-up, and that that was where I introduced the idea of a breakaway civilization in that section. Mm. Uh, perhaps in the introduction of of the book as well. After I did it, I actually I can't remember, <laughs> but um, that's where it was. And and the um, the way that I came up with it, I this was um, an idea that truly evolved in my mind for quite a while. And I would just add, I would just say that. Um, I'm I am a historian by training, but I think at heart I'll, I'll always be um, a philosopher, and I try to look at the UFO phenomenon in philosophical terms. Mm. And I've I have always tried to be original in the way that I think about this. So, so when I um, thought about the idea of a breakaway civilization, this is actually one of a long list of of ideas in the UFO field that I've been putting out there that I, I feel were first. I, I think that I was the first UFO author, for example, to talk at great length about the influence of artificial intelligence in, uh, in the UFO phenomenon. I did that shortly after I first published my, 
first book, um, I talked about um, what I called uh, invisible fascism encroaching in the world uh, shortly after 9-11. I felt I felt that um, I I could never just be satisfied with writing a, um, a historical chronology and a fact base. I I, I have to um, provide my own analysis and mm. see this in its original way. So the idea of a breakaway civilization, though, it's it's actually a simple idea, um, but it's based on a few premises. So premise number one is: was there um, acquired technology through crash retrievals of ufos and i believe the answer to that is yes uh, i've described why i believe this many times but mm. there are in fact many um actually good and detailed accounts mm. of what appear to be um you know human institutions uh, military institutions where they have Alien technology and bodies. I personally have spoken to quite a few of these. Alien as in unknown. Alien as in extraterrestrial. Okay, so uh, if there were like humans on the moon crashing, you wouldn't call that an alien. Well, I would call that pretty damned interesting. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so my point is that, first of all, uh, your books are excellent in that you can either take your analysis and run with it, as many have done. Yeah, that's right. Or yeah, you yeah. can just relate to the stuff itself, the historical recordings. And itself. honestly, look, I'm, I'm sure, I have no doubt that a lot of the, um, any of the ideas that I've speculated on, I'm sure some of them are wrong. I'm sure some have been, and I, I will always reserve the right to be wrong in the future. Uh, that's just that's just like <laughs> yeah. But my point is, where do you take that extra step and conclude that something is well, alien? Yeah, and, I, and I'm just being the devil's lawyer here. No, no, no. That's yeah. that's fine. And the, well, the reason that I have that conclusion is because uh, in um, in my second volume of of UFOs and the National Security State, actually one of the things that I spent a lot of time doing was to go over leaked accounts of crash retrievals, leaked accounts of military insiders speaking to a variety of UFO researchers, giving their story. Uh, this is all something that really began to come out in the late 1970s and through the 1980s. And what I tried to do is to really look carefully at those stories and ask myself, is this uh, disinformation or, or can there be something to it? And mm. my my conclusion then and now is that there's too much of this and this looks like it's legitimate. Mm. Um, and, and it, and so I can, I've concluded that I think there's something to it, that there are a number of these, these, uh, stories out there that we did recover something at, for example, Roswell at, I also believe, um, Aztec, New Mexico in 1948. Um, there is an event in Las Vegas, outside Las Vegas in 1962 that I think is, is quite significant. And there are a number of other ones, frankly, there's quite a few, uh, when you start going through all of them and I, I don't, claim that all of them are extraterrestrial crafts but but some of them are really suggestive um, so you're talking about something so exotic that it breaks with the current human scientific uh, yeah status. something so exotic in terms of the technology and in terms of the the, the bodies that are recovered um, they don't appear to be human in many cases so so that's an assumption i started with now you don't have to have an extraterrestrial assumption to, to devise the idea of a breakaway civilization mm. but you're asking me how i i came to it and and I came to it through a series of assumptions, and that was my first assumption, that they recovered technology. Assumption number two was that this technology 
has been studied at deeply, deeply, deeply classified levels. Uh, now, this is something that I think everyone can probably agree on. So you have classified scientific breakthroughs mm. that the public is not permitted to explore. Um, so, for example, if, if you continue with the extraterrestrial model of this, you have brilliant scientists in, in private industry contracted through the Pentagon to study one or another specific aspect of this technology and enough genius scientists working on it come up with some nifty ideas. They may come up with, uh, you know, whether it's labor lasers or fiber optics or high tensile fibers, those are money makers. But what if they come up with even better ideas? For example, new energy paradigms, something that replaces petroleum or anti-gravity in some sort, some field propulsion technology, whether it's electrogravitics or uh, geomagnetic principles. Those or, like they always do in the military-industrial complex, devise a new kind of super weapon based on this technology. Oh, yeah. Weaponizing the technology is very key. Yeah. So, so my, my point is this. In terms of energy, in terms of propulsion, if those breakthroughs were made, you know, I mean, if, in other words, they're trying to make their own flying saucer. If you recover a flying saucer, presumably you're going to try to reproduce it yourself. And if you have some success, do you tell the world? And the answer is no, you do not tell the world. If you tell the world, there goes the petroleum industry, which owns all of you anyway. Um, and, and that's just not going to happen. And, and why would you replace the petroleum industry in 1960, let's say, when, um, you know, by those ideas at the time, there's enough oil to last forever. Mm. And based on 1960 levels of consumption, it certainly would have lasted. You know, we'd have a lot easier time of it. Um, why rock the boat? So, no, they, their idea would be keep this breakthrough uh, secret. And so what would happen is you classify the breakthrough, you allow the classified world to continue while the rest of the world's future is basically being held hostage. And it, this is the way the science pr progresses. You know, you have one breakthrough that can lead to another, which can lead to another. But if, if a key breakthrough is being withheld from the general public, they're, they're going to advance much more slowly than the people in the classified world who have a completely different scientific um, understanding, which would allow them to create objects, let us say their own flying craft, their own flying saucers, mm. of which there are countless leaks emanating from the classified world at this point, including the black triangles and much more. And so what are they doing with these craft? Well, they're not using them for ordinary military conflict, for an ordinary geopolitical warfare. That's too low a level for them. The mission for these is, is much more classified, and the mission for these would be to go off-world. Unless someone thinks that this is in, uh, ridiculous, I would remind them that in the history of United States military encounters, there's been a number of cases where classified U.S. technology has been held, was held back. Because using it in a certain conflict um, was not at a high enough classification level. Even something as simple as the 1986 bombing of Libya by the United States, which was done by F-111 jet interceptors, was not done by the stealth fighter, uh, which was operational at the time and classified. Because using the stealth fighter would have given its secret away, and they, they felt the Libya bombing wasn't important enough. So this is a, a, an old principle in the American military. Mm. And I, I would suggest that um, something as highly classified as 
our own flying saucer technology would not be used simply for warfare in Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere else. It would be used for, for going off world. So there's a precedence for them sitting on the latest technology and only releasing it after a long while when it's long been made obsolete if, by, if by new discoveries. That's what you're saying. Yes, yeah. I, I, that's exactly that's exactly it. And mm. so in the case of breakaway technology, the question is, you know, and I this is this is me formulating this idea back in 2008, mm. um, asking, you know, what would they be using this for? And I think that they would be using this to go off world. And then on top of that, I started looking at a lot of of leaks that came to me in conversations that I had. So, for example, one conversation, and I believe I referenced this in my um, in the first time I wrote about this idea. I had a conversation with a scientist. He's actually very well known. Um, I, I will release his name one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, a civilian contractor to the NSA back in 1965. Mm. So way, way, way back. Uh, the NSA, And he's still alive. He's still alive. Mm. He's, uh, I'm very friendly with him. Mm. He, um, in 1965, the NSA had only recently been publicized as an organization at all. It was the first book ever to discuss the NSA came out in 1964. Hmm. So, and, and it had not, no one had even known there was an NSA prior to 1964, essentially. Hmm. Um, so he's in 1965, he's a civilian there, and he told me point blank, the NSA back then was operating computers that had a clock speed of 650 megahertz. Now, for, to put that in perspective, I mean, today, 650 megahertz is very slow. It's uh, anything is, is faster than that. But that's a clock speed that was not matched by the consumer market until the year 2000, so about 35 <laughs> years later. So the, on that basis, you could say the NSA was 35 years ahead of, of the uh, world consumer market for computers, aside from the fact that in 1965, no one had computers at all. Or knew who the NSA was. No, exactly. When were yeah. they founded? They were found in 1952. Right, so 10 yeah. years at least in secret. That's right, in complete secrecy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people joke, they say NSA stands for no such agency. <laughs> uh, but my point is simply this, that you have an example of an agency that, in fact, nobody even knew about that had perhaps some of the most advanced computing in the world, maybe the most advanced computing in the world, mm-hmm. decades ahead of the rest of the world. So we we have this example. And there are others. There are many, many these are all leaks, all unofficial statements, but there are so many of them coming from individuals who worked at places like Area 51 and Groom Lake and talk about how advanced the technology is. And I started looking at these. So there was a journalist in the 1980s named James Goodall who did a great deal of work at Groom Lake and Area 51, interviewed a number of people there. Uh, one was uh, in the mid-1980s with 11 years' experience at Groom, said to him, we have things in the Nevada desert that would make George Lucas envious. George Lucas of Star Wars. Um, who, who was this again who said this that? Is, this is an 11-year veteran of Groom Lake in the classified programs. Right. We have programs out there that would make George Lucas envious. I mean, that's a yeah. very, very... And, and he continued, he said, better than Star Wars, better than Star Trek, better than anything you can see in the movies. This is nice. This resembles what I think it was one of the Lockheed Martin people said about uh, going to the moon and back again before lunch. Uh, or, or would make uh, E.T. envious. That's another statement out there. He, Do you know who, which people said these two things? Well, uh, the E.T. I, I don't know if you're referring to Ben Rich, who... Yeah, uh, that's one of yeah, them. Ben, yeah. ben Rich was the... Um, 
he succeeded Kelly Johnson as the head of Lockheed's most uh, prestigious division, Skunk Works, and so the guys who did the U-2 aircraft and the SR-71 Blackbird. This, these are real hot shots. And Ben Rich was a, an amazing man. Uh, toward the end of his life, Ben Rich in the 1980s and 90s made a number of statements that were very, very um, suggestive and, and I guess we should say pro-ET in, um, hmm. in describing their reality. In uh, 1993, very not long before he died, he died in 95, uh, Ben Rich gave a talk at the UCLA school, um, I think alumni, an alumni gathering, School of Engineering. And um, uh, someone that I know uh, actually was in attendance there, and that's the current leader of the organization MUFON, Jan Harzan. I've spoken to Jan about this, in fact, many times. But Ben Rich gave a lecture there, and he... It was basically on um, kind of standard uh, black butt, uh, Lockheed technology, um, but then he ended it with the statement, we now have the technology to take E.T. home, mm. and it won't take a lifetime to do it. Mm. And with that, he, he ended it, and um, a lot of people just being boring, uncurious people they just filed out of the room <laughs> but a few people stayed behind and and they they surrounded him they took the bait like 10 people and said wait what are you talking about yeah. uh jan harzan was one of these people and good and ben rich talked for a few minutes very explicitly hmm. um about what he meant and he said yes we we've uh discovered uh how to go to the stars but there was an error there was an error in the equations and we corrected the error and we now know how to travel to the stars. He said... Um, and this was presumably off the record. This is all off the record. Mm. But Harzan was listening and he wrote it all down. And so you can take Jan Harzan at his word if you choose. I do. Mm. And then he said, um, you know, this this secret, you know, with the end of the Cold War, because this is 1993, um, this is information that should be made to the public. But it's so deeply locked up in the black world the black budget world that it would take an act of god he said to get it out and this was back in 1993 huh. when rich um had this lecture huh. so the so there are um there are statements like this and like a number of others that are really bizarre there's there is a conversation that i personally had uh that made me think toward a breakaway civilization this is a conversation i had in the early 2000s with russell targ now russell targ was one of the, the two main scientists who, on contract with the CIA, helped to develop their remote viewing program in the 1970s, uh, along with Hal Puthoff mm-hmm. of the Stanford Research Institute. And, and I, know, I know both of those gentlemen. Uh, Russell Targ, in a phone conversation, uh, said to me, this is, this is exact, he said, Richard, in the early 1980s, uh, I was uh, charged with um, training remote viewers at Fort Meade, Maryland, whose job was to remote view the far side of the moon. And there was a bit of a pause on the phone. And uh, I was asking myself, how do I, what do I say to this one? <laughs> I mean, really, what do, you, what do you say, far side of the moon? I said, well, why would they do that, Russell? And he said, why do you think? Hmm. And there was this, another pause on the phone, and I, I thought, all right, I'll just, I'll just say it. So I asked him, okay, well, were they looking for ET on the far side of the moon? 
I figured I would ask him. He didn't say maybe. He didn't say no. He said yes. He said yes. Their job was to look for extraterrestrials on the far side of the moon. And presumably, this was part of the the military remote viewing program, right? So yeah, Fort Meade, Maryland, um, was where the um, U.S. Army had their uh, Stargate program, which is a, this is a remote viewing program. And Fort Meade, Maryland, is also where the NSA headquarters happened to be. Hmm. But it was uh, clearly a military program. So what he was. So then I asked him, well, did they find ET? on the far side of the moon. And he said, that I do not know. That wasn't part of my, um, my job assignment. But again, I, I just will have to say, I believe Russell. And um, so if they were looking for ET on the far side of the moon in the early 1980s, I can only presume that they had reason to think that they would find ET if they looked on the far side of the moon. And they had reason to think that. Why would they think that? Mm. So when I, when I, I consider things like this, and then all of the um, interesting anomalies that have occurred in Earth orbit and beyond that have been <clears throat> either recorded, and some of, some of the videos are very interesting in my opinion, or described by astronauts and cosmonauts over the years. I think that there's activity in space that's not being discussed. So when I put all of these things together, it seems to me that there's an infrastructure that's out there, and, and it's a classified secret infrastructure. So when I asked myself, what is a civilization? The other thing that made me come up on that, uh, that phrase is although I've I've always been studying UFOs, I, I study other things too, and I had just been reading Arnold Toynbee. Um, Arnold Toynbee was a, a true genius historian, and um, he did what was called a study of civilization, mm-hmm. and um, and really breaking down what is it that constitutes a true human civilization. And uh, so this was very much in my mind, and um, and I thought you know within the classified world, their science is different. Their interactions are different. I mean, they're, they have a completely different way of looking at the world. And so what is it that constitutes a unique civilization? And I thought if I look at a lot of these different things, they really can constitute a separate civilization, one that is broken away from our own. And that's really how the phrase came into my mind. What was this in any way tied to the already established scientific concept about a type one civilization, type two, type three, you know these terms, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. These are, uh, um, is it Freeman Dyson, I believe, who um, mm. had those concepts, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there's, uh, Michio Kaku talked about this yeah, as well. Yeah, he too. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, right, I mean, I certainly there are lots of people who've been thinking about, you know, uh, you know, kind of a grand, uh, stepping back, what is, what are these civilizations what could they be like mm. i think these are all valid um you know important ways of looking at it uh for me i just thought uh, you know you you can have a completely classified infrastructure in fact we had it in our own history we had during the cold war we had an example in the 20th century of two very separate scientific infrastructures that did share some information but also didn't share a lot of other information and in fact um I remembered studying the history of Soviet science, uh, Soviet biology. There was the uh, kind of uh, ridiculous case of uh, the scientist Trofim Lysenko, who um, had a particular form of uh, biological evolutionary theory that was based on Soviet communist principles. And it was such a scientific joke, but it was it was law to follow Lysenko's uh, science during the 1940s and 50s. And... Um, it was only after Stalin died that 
that, mm. that became uh, dethroned. It's an easy, it's an interesting thing to look up. But so, like the Nazis, they had an ideological, accountable uh, science. Absolutely. Huh. Right. So, in other words, so what we what we tend to think is that in our our era, you know, our science and our infrastructures are sort of through the globalization, they're combining and they're merging, which I think overall is true. But there are other possibilities where you have breakaway ideas, as in the Soviet case, as in the Nazi case, mm. and and could you have a breakaway? within the classified world? And the answer I think is absolutely yes. And then the question is how secret, how advanced could it be? If you have something as exotic as extraterrestrial technology tossed into the mix, how how far could it go? Now again, if, if one doesn't want to accept ET technology, you could leave open the possibility that is some version of classified, let's say Tesla technology. Um, you know, Joseph uh, Farrell and a number of other people have speculated along these lines. Certainly, there's there's real possibilities there. I I think, frankly, that that is both. Um, I think mm. that there is uh, classified Tesla tech. That's a very very um, prime interest. But I do believe there's an ET component. And by the way, I would I would point out, unless unless Joseph's changed his mind again lately, last time I chatted with him about it, he was I think he really did accept the reality that there is an ET component to um, at least. Well, uh, not to answer on behalf of others, but my impression is that many of these people who are not ufologists per se, like Hoagland, like Farrell and others, of course, they are open to the fact that uh, there may be extraterrestrial components to this. I mean, to dismiss that would be <laughs> crazy. But, oh, right, exactly. but I mean, when you read Farrell's work, he, he focuses on other things. It's yeah. really true. In my own conversations with him, I, I've never found that he had a problem with any of the ET. No, no. But the point here is that when you coined the term breakaway civilization that has resonated with so many, uh, it's kind of irrelevant where they got it from. The fact that they do have it is what makes this case so strong. And uh, after Valet, he introduced alternative explanations too, like it can be, uh, you know, it can be a time component to this. It can be time travelers. Right. It can be ancient antediluvian civilization technology. It can be people, humans, off-planet. So there's many uh, possibilities here, but I guess... No, I, I agree. When you say extraterrestrial, you don't dismiss those uh, alternatives, no, right? No, not at all. No, no. Um, I think, I, I look at the... Uh, it's it's almost... Uh, I don't know if it's really true or not, but it's often uh, popular for people thinking about this topic to dismiss the extraterrestrial hypothesis, maybe because it's, it's just gotten so much attention... Uh, and it it is the dominant sort of mainstream media way that we look at UFOs, and there, are, as Valet would often say, you know, I would I would really be disappointed if that was the true explanation. <laughs> There's many more interesting things out there. Yeah. Which um, when we talk about things like dimensions, um, mm. I mean, it's true. How do human beings perceive reality? Well, we perceive reality through space and through time. That's the way our brains work, and uh, we perceive a certain type of dimensions, but. If there are beings that have the ability to manipulate space and time in ways that we cannot understand, it would be like uh, people coming into a, a pond and fish noticing that there's something here, if they have the ability to notice, and then the person leaves the pond. I mean, someone could be coming into our reality and then doing their thing and then just leaving, and we may not really have much of an ability to comprehend exactly all that they are doing, and uh, this is... I actually think this is the case, but that doesn't rule out an extraterrestrial component. No. 
I think, honestly, um, I'm doubtful that I, or maybe most of us, will actually ever really truly grasp the full enormity of what's happening. I happen to think the extraterrestrial explanation is probably the least problematic of all of them. Uh, when I look at all of these explanations, I, I find problems with with That's some wrong. of them. Whether it's an dim- interdimensional yeah. uh, aspect or time traveler aspect, um, when you really go, or or just fully human, an ancient breakaway civilization. I've I've wondered a lot about this. You know, is it possible that ancient humans uncovered a great secret mm. about how to manipulate the world, and have they kept? Uh, and that can be back engineered like anything else if they have traces out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Um, so all of these are possibilities. Uh, to me, I, I just I, I'm very interested in thinking about those. Uh, at the same time, um, when I get too confused by all the possibilities, I come back to the to the main line, which is there is a reality. It is not being acknowledged. That is evidence of let us call it a cover up and secrecy. And so let's start let's start with step one and. Uh, I mean, I'm always happy to swim into the deep waters, but uh, I yeah. want to remember where, you know, where my feet can be on solid ground. And my feet are on solid ground when I when I notice that there are unexplained UFO reports that come from the United States military that were declassified mm. during a brief golden moment in my nation's history that prove to me, they don't hint, they don't suggest, but they prove that there has been a phenomenon that is not being adequately explained by the powers that be that the U.S. military and other militaries have been interacting with for years and years and years and that it appears not to be of our civilization and that sometimes it appears to be what I would call extraterrestrial. I mean, so all of that, I think, that's out in the public record. Mm. And so I try to remind myself, this is what I know and then that's what I think things look like and there's a big distinction there. Mm. I try to keep them separate. With respect to to Stephen Greer and others who are heavily on the ET wagon, I can appreciate the situation because we need evidence in order to not just be believers, right? And it is not easy to, you know, provide evidence. Do you have an ET lying around? That would be handy. Yeah, right, exactly. But, but there are other. After I saw the many years ago, I saw the what popular called the NASA UFOs. You know what to what I refer? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there's a a doc, several documentaries dealing with Nazi UFOs. And yeah, many. Outer space. They're on YouTube now. Yeah, and there's so many of them, and some are so huge that my first thought when I looked at these plasma phenomenons were that could they be alive? Is this something organic? Is this some kind of life form uh, living out there? Because there's so many of them. But my point here is not to, you know, explain what they are. The point is that in order to entertain the breakaway civilization hypothesis, uh, it must be substantiated by a UFO phenomenon upon technological aspects, and that's what you have a solid case for. Could one say that? Yes, I think the most solid case that I've put together in my own career in doing this is to show that the UFO phenomenon is real, forgetting where it's from, what the origins are, that the phenomenon is real, that it's important that it is considered important by national security elements in uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere, mm. and that its uh, its existence is being officially denied. And 
and we are obligated as citizens in what we still like to consider a, a free society to ask why are you why is this discrepancy here i mean why are you hiding this information or at least seeming to hide this information so i think we're obligated but you have explanations like graham hancock's that can be tied to mental psychic phenomenon but there is no doubt a technological aspect yeah. to many ufos right absolutely and this, i right so i didn't think i understood your first question but i i get it now mm. so there's there is a mental aspect to it there's a, a consciousness aspect that a lot of people like to focus on and i i like graham's work in in many ways but there is definitely a technological component to this and to me that's that's a particular interest um someone has got technology that's not supposed to exist whether it's us or not us someone has got it and i think that's important uh who's flying the black triangles so well we might be we probably are flying the black triangles maybe after the break or we can we can talk about that but um there are um i think there are definitely human-based technologies that are being operated that are truly breakaway we've got technology here and someone needs to do some explaining about it (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Before we go to break here, is there anything else basic about the concept that can be said? Because in part two, we'll have a license to speculate, but yeah. just about facts. Right. What else would you inform us about that has been relevant for the concept of a breakaway civilization? It's a good question. Um, a Again, the idea... I, I would have to to say that I don't know if any of us has actually been able to prove, uh, you know, how does one prove that a breakaway civilization exists other than breaking into a facility with a camcorder and record it, recording it and coming out or getting a, an officially released document? Uh, what we're doing is looking by inference. So my um, my feeling is it's a, it's a series of if-then statements, and this is really how I, I came to it. If we've recovered exotic technology, if there's continued secrecy about it, if the if the breakthroughs have have been made classified and are, and were prevented from, mm. and and then you have all of these these leaked accounts that have come out again and again, uh, and then answering other questions, how how would this be funded? I had long conversations with um, with my friend Catherine Austin Fitz about the funding of the black budget breakaway civilization. Uh, Joseph, Catherine, and I are sort of three. Uh, we're three friends who really will talk about these ideas together every so often. Mm. It's a very interesting aspect to it. But you you mentioned leaks. What about this British hacker? Gary McKinnon. Uh, they went very hard after him. Yeah, he found something. Yeah, he, uh, Gary McKinnon. I think is a very is a very interesting case. So back in the 1990s, uh, Gary was j- just hanging out at a, I think it was his girlfriend's apartment. So we're late 1990s computing technology. There's internet, and he was fascinated with the UFO cover-up. This was this was his motivation, and he went into websites, visited websites of various U.S. agencies, including U.S. Space Command. What he found is that their security protocols were not really all that um, impressive. Mm-hmm. It was back in the 90s, after all. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and he. Um, and uh, he got in. He got into the U.S. Space Command website. He wasn't really trying to to hack the site. He wasn't really truly hacking in the proper sense of the word. But he, it's like they left the door open and he got in mm. and saw things that um, he reported about later, um, including the existence of what he seemed to believe was a space a secret space fleet. Um, names of ships that did not appear in the U.S. Navy register, uh, including references to non-terrestrial officers. Uh 
that's what Gary McKinnon has claimed. Mm. Now, what we know for sure is that the United States for over a decade went after Gary McKinnon to arrest him and basically to seemingly to want to imprison him at places like Guantanamo Bay. I mean, they went after him and tried to destroy his life. And he became a cause celeb in, uh, in the UK and they prevented the, his extradition. Mm. But this was a long, long winded, a long standing um, effort to get him. So I think it, it really speaks to his credibility. Mm. Um, you know, what you find in, in the um, news coverage of Gary McKinnon is that after the initial coverage uh, discusses UFO interests, all like subsequent news articles really ignored it. They never really said why he mm. went into the U.S. Space Command website and what he was trying to look for. They just described him as the greatest hacker in the Defense Department history, which is also a lie. Yeah. Um, but it's this UFO connection, and um, I've spoke with Gary McKinnon on a couple of occasions, and he's a very decent guy. Um, you know, I think there is absolutely no reason to dispute what he what he claims he saw. You can try to reinterpret it in a different way, I suppose, but he um, there's a lot to his story, and I think he is someone else who probably did get a peek at. Uh, at the breakaway civilization and secret space program. Yeah, people had to rally around him in England uh, for him not to be handed out to the American authorities. But if it was all the way back to the 90s, why did this uh, get traction in the press um, more recently? Well, he was he was arrested in uh, 2002. Hmm. So he um, he was searching through websites through the late 90s. And I believe he made his actual breakthrough in 2000. I have notes on this. Um, I'm just going off of memory. And so he continued from time to time to go in. And he, as I recall, he would uh, taunt them. Like he would basically go into the site and, and let them know, ha ha, I'm here again. And uh, I think he, he rather got off on that. And so they finally... They finally identified him and, and raided his apartment, and that was in 2002. Okay. So he did this for for a little while. This is a longstanding interest of his. He never handed out any evidence from what he found. No, he was – well, again, he wasn't able to get screenshots. This is uh, on old PCs, yeah. you know, 15-plus uh, years ago, and it was it was trickier. I mean, would have been nice if he had had like a – a camera, took a picture of his TV monitor, things like that. Um, I mean, he wasn't really what you would call a a um, meticulous type of a researcher, not like yourself or maybe not like I would have done. Like if we, if we had gone in there, I think we would have probably been. My save button would be permanently. Yeah, there you go. I mean, <laughs> Gary, Gary did not do this. I mean, he just wasn't – he wasn't really um, – he wasn't a scholar or researcher that really – he just was a guy who was interested, you know. Yeah, he was a cowboy. He, exactly. So um, <laughs> unfortunately, he didn't He didn't really take uh, detailed notes. Yeah, but from time to time, we see in less credible uh, news releases that, uh, oh, in the WikiLeaks, Assange have UFO documents, Snowden have UFO documents. Is there any truth to this? Have you any connection? No, I've looked into this. So when when uh, a number of these these stories come out, uh, I always look into it. And and 
there are certain websites out there that really do specialize in, in fake news, false news, um, and um, in particular with um, – yeah, I think it was a WikiLeaks connection where supposedly they were um, – they had this you know important UFO disclosure information, and I have not found any of these sources that actually um, – substantiate it now there there is the case when um shortly before bradley now chelsea manning was arrested i think it was during that period uh during the massive release of documents by wikileaks having to do with the pentagon and their war crimes um there was a hint I think these were legitimate hints that there was some UFO data in the WikiLeaks documents. Now, the problem is we're talking thousands upon thousands and thousands of pages of documents, and it takes time to go through these things. Um, someone in WikiLeaks, not Assange, but someone else high up said there's uh, the equivalent of a nuclear bomb in what we have here. Yeah, yeah, I read it. Um, and there, there actually was legitimate connection to phenomenon at that time but there's really been nothing to come out of it since then hmm. my my feeling is that it would have to be an inevitability that something could leak out um and i think a wikileaks type of phenomenon an edward snowden type of uh, release i think yes this is w the ufo phenomenon is just waiting hmm. to be released by someone of this sort who's gets the date and, and puts it out there you know it would be completely illegal but that won't stop it from happening you know that you probably would be one of the candidates contacted well i i don't know <laughs> I mean, if, if someone has something and they want to send it to me uh, i don't think they they realize just how crazy my own life is at times i mean i'm sitting here in my my bedroom i'm not even fully dressed and i've got stacks of books and papers everywhere uh, i live in a very modest modest life if someone were to uh, to provide me with that information, uh, I I don't know what I would do. To be honest with you, I I don't think I would turn them away. But um, mm. it's imp it's very important because in this field, it's very easy to be taken in mm. by a false information. Yeah. And no one is impervious. No one, not myself, not anybody. And so the the thing is, we all want to be as careful as possible. So if I were to be uh, approach with information like that i would i would definitely um try to get as much research behind me as i could and and have some other key people that i trust uh look at this okay but i want you to make a pledge here and now okay. uh, and that is if you ever are in a situation where you can talk in private with either snowden assange or manning promise that you will ask them about ufos <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I do. I make that pledge. Yes, I promise. Excellent. Uh, I, I would. I would actually love to have the opportunity to to communicate with someone like Julian Assange. I mean, who am I? He's Julian Assange is still a prisoner mm. in London, basically. And um, well, I think you should be able to interview him, but you, it wouldn't be a private line, you know. He's he's stuck in the the Ecuadorian embassy, yeah, yeah, yeah. London. Um, yeah, I would. I would like to. I actually tried finding a way to get in touch with him. This is some time ago, and I, I, I didn't make much uh, progress. But um, you never know. I would. I would love to have a chance. Try the official channels. Yeah, I'm sure WikiLeaks would help you out.
Well, they're not interested in promoting the UFO connection publicly, and, and I don't. I'm not even blaming them. It's uh, it's just another albatross to wear around one's neck. Oh, sure, but, but there are so many aspects that you could ask anyway. I mean, uh, oh. it's about the huge bureaucracy, false flag, intelligence, military. Right, right, There's exactly. a lot of connecting dots anyway. I think you could get something out yeah. of it. And that's getting into some of my current research there as well. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get back to that. Mm-hmm. I think we'll take a break now. Uh, And when we come back, we'll delve deeper into the breakaway civilization concept. And also, to listeners of our other shows, I'll pitch to Richard the two questions that has become a tradition now to ask almost all our guests about. So, yeah, you'll see what that is. (laughs) Okay. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks.